Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Strong Dads Community. I'm your host, Charlie Ford. This podcast is part of Thumos, a community optimizing men for growth, purpose, and impact. You can find us on most social media platforms under the handle Strong Dads Community, or you can check us out at strongdadscommunity.com. Thank you all for listening today. I really hope the parallels in these stories encourage you to realize your own potential. Today, we have a husband and an adoptive father. He is a leader in Thumos community, and he is passionate about, passionate about spirituality, and he has been doing men's work for about 18 years now. He's the man, the myth, and the legend in the making, Mr. Brooke Barano. Welcome, Brooke. How you doing, brother? I'm well. I love that. Legend in the making. It feels, uh, <laughs> feels too much, but thank you. <laughs> well, it always feels too much until it's it's true, right? So that's... That's good, man. I'm so happy that uh, that you got the time to be on this podcast, man. Um, this is special, and uh, really appreciate this. Yeah, likewise, man. It's um, I've listened to so many of your podcasts, and I'm, I'm always blown away about what I can take away from each uh, each episode. It's just like, wow, I didn't know that about that man, or wow, he just gave me so much protein. Wow, look at that nugget. So uh, my hope is that maybe something I share today will help some man, at least one man in at least one way. Yes. And that's, that's really the hope that that's kind of the hope is that, uh, uh, that listen to another man's journey. Maybe there's some little nugget that, that can come out and really uh, speak to uh, an individual. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you, Brooke. I want to, I want to, um, just take everybody into where you are in life. Uh, I did mention that you're an adoptive father. Tell us a little bit about your status right now, marital and your kids. Yeah, married to Amy, um, married my bride in 2001. So we're 22 years deep into the, into the, the, the marriage journey. We, um, we met in college, uh, pretty neat deal. So, uh, met in college, but, uh, didn't start dating really until after college. Well, actually until she was, I was out, but um, she she was still in as we were starting to date each other. So um, we have one daughter. She's 11 years old. Her name's Bella. She's beautiful, <laughs> as the name suggests. <laughs> she's uh, just a wonderful kid, man. Really smart. Dead, you know, just super into into us. She she still thinks we're cool. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure that will change soon, but. Uh, um, she's a great kid. She's a uh, Western Barrel uh, competitor. She rides uh, uh, she rides her, her horse and uh, she competes in local rodeos and she plays piano and she's in the choir and she's in the advanced classes and she's a uh, she's a bookworm man. You know she's a uh, she reads two books a week and she's just fingers in the dirt. Loves butterflies. She's a dichotomy of the absolute feminine and the kind of that rough and tough, almost like tomboyish nature. So it's pretty cool. You know, um, I don't have a boy, but I'm pretty close to it. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> you know, is there anything she doesn't do? Cause it sounds like she's good. She pretty much does it all, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's cool because, you know, like I don't say all that to brag. It's just that I say all that because I only have one child, you know, and it's like, she does a lot of different things. And so it's kind of like the busyness of, and she's a girl scout, right? And so, um, 
it's kind of like the the busyness of having more than one kid, which is neat. She's you know she's very energetic, but um, not crazy hyper. But she just has she's got a lot of life in her, man, a lot of gusto, and I'm just very proud of her. She's um she demonstrated the you know like the capacity that I have for love. You know when I I didn't know how much I could love a human until until I held that child. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh about the adoption piece but we'll, we'll we'll kind of table that for now because i want to want to back up a little bit and talk about you um you know as a child um it, it, you're you're you've been in the thumos community you started the thumos 1.0 18 years ago with with jody and uh, you've been on this spiritual journey for such a long time um and and a lot of it has to do with with uh you know being a son and, and just being a man. And so like when I, when I think back to your childhood, what, what was your relationship like with your dad and your mom? Yeah, thanks. Um, my dad is a, is a really good man. He's an honest man. I mean, he's the honest Abe, you know, honest to a fault. If there is such a thing, he's a very gentle man. Um, just a very good father dedicated to the craft of fatherhood. He's a, a very sensitive person. And I, I get that from him quite a bit. Um, just a really uh, kind person, uh, devoted to his family, um, showed up at every single baseball game he could ever make. Uh, you know, one of, I'm one of seven kids, one of six now, but one of seven initially. And he was, uh, busy trying to make time to spend dedicated time with each child. And he did quite a bit of that with me, uh, with seven. Of course, we always want more, more time with our, with our, our, our dads. But, uh, man, I'll tell you what, you know, it was a nothing deal for him to be in the ba- in the front yard, throwing the baseball with me or at, a, you know, taking me or picking me up to or from games or practice. Um, and if he wasn't doing that with just me, he was taking all of us camping or out on a boat. You know, we, we owned a boat through the, uh, the entirety of our, our family history. And, uh, he always, you know, made time for trips. So he's very dedicated, um, religious, you know, Christian father, uh, very family oriented. And so my relationship with, with him was always good. He wasn't the perfect father doesn't exist right but he was he was excellent charlie he was excellent was he part was he part part of the inspiration for you to start this spiritual journey 18 years ago yes but not how you'd think so so dad took me to church and first communion and uh you know uh confirmation all those things right and so what he did was he created what we call the God container in me. He created that, that container in my life and it looked a certain way. And my, what I put in my God container is a little different than what he has in his, but he, he first helped me create that container. And now I've, I've filled it with what fits best for me in terms of the truth and the reality and the, and the um, God as I, as I know him or her. Mm. I like the God container reference. I hadn't heard it like that before. Yeah. It's kind of how your relationship with God. 
and, right. it, and, yeah. and it differs. Yes. Yeah, he built a stage for me to to act out my relationship on. And so you you were um, I mean, just knowing you for the past few years, you're definitely a um, have always been into the. You've been a physical guy. You're you're, you're in really great shape. Uh, it sounds like you were probably into a lot of sports when you were younger. Probably did them pretty well. Is that correct? Yeah, always, always, always been athletic. Um, I, I have good genes. I have um, a very outgoing mindset. I just I want to be doing. I love uh, I love physical activity. Um, stag being stagnant um, literally hurts. It's not a it's not a good place for me to be. I, I get uh, itchy and grumpy. <laughs> you know, I just I like to go, man. So as a kid, you know, I didn't want to be inside, um, always out going, going, going. You know, if I wasn't at baseball, I was on the bike. If I wasn't on the bike, I was climbing fences and army gear. Um, you know, fast forward in high school, it was baseball until I discovered lacrosse. And then it was like I have an opportunity to sprint all day. I'm on it. And we get to check people. I'm on it. So physical, right? And then into college, uh, into the mountain biking scene, and then um, you know from there, uh, boot camps, um, uh, you know, group fitness, Muay Thai, uh, Jiu Jitsu, um, boxing, um, and then from there, found CrossFit. Bam! Blew my world open. Like where was this, right? So CrossFit was incremental until it wasn't. Um, I just don't have the back for it anymore. Approaching 50, I, I, uh, I have to do things that are a little less intense. So still try to stay fit. I'm not as, uh, you know, my job demands a lot of physical activity for me. So I don't dedicate as much time in the gym as I, as I once did. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm strong for my size. Um, and, uh, I'm just full of life and vigor. Oh man. And for the people who don't know what Brooke looks like, uh, for the listeners out there, Brooke Brooke is the type of guy that he could skip the gym for six months and he shows up one day and it looks like he just got out of the gym. So, (laughs) so yeah, I mean, you are definitely, you've got the right right genes. You, you look like you're always, uh, you know, in, in really good shape. So, um, I just can imagine when you were younger doing your, uh, you know, doing the sports and stuff, I'm, I'm sure it was, it was pretty awesome. And, and uh, when I think back about that, I guess the question that also comes up is how much of that was a contributing factor for you to get in the mental space and get into spirituality deeper? It, would you would you attribute a lot of your uh, your athleticism to that and your sports and the things that you've done that way? Well, maybe if I were to look at the, like the facet of outdoors, you know, like. But I look around, it's like I just see God. I see God in the outdoors. Um, you know, the sports I like to do, by and large, are outdoors. And so it's like I can sit. Uh, I mean, I can, I can, I can just sit and look at trees. I can be uh, bare feet in the grass. I can. Moving water is my favorite. I just love moving water. So being from Texas, we have a lot of clear running moving water, right? And uh, those moments are are God. You know, whether we're swimming or rafting or floating a river or um, climbing mountains or hunting. Oh, my gosh, there's just so much God there. So, you know, I came from a very faith-filled family, and I always learned about God in the, in the, in the 
kind of the context of how my parents wanted me to learn about it. And, you know, I grew up in a Catholic church and, um, great Catholicism. Fine. For a lot of people, for me, it didn't work so much because the message I was getting was fear, shame, and guilt. And I'm one sin away from losing my salvation every day. And I'm always working from a deficit to appease a vengeful, angry God that, um, is, you know, going to send me somewhere for being a bad boy, right? That's literally the message that we were taught in that school. And that didn't fit for me, Charlie. It was just like, you know, God is love. Hmm. Well, <laughs> what you're telling me is doesn't really fit that model, right? I mean, these people are telling me all these things and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I got to say so many Hail Marys and, and, and our fathers and, and uh, confess my sins to somebody other than God. It's like, well, hold on, I'm getting mixed messages here, right? And so this, the, that was the religion piece. And religion um, doesn't fit for me. As a matter of fact, it didn't fit for Jesus. Jesus came to destroy religion, the structure, the, the hierarchy of religion. Stop doing that. You don't need to pay money to go and be forgiven. He overturned money, the money changers tables in the temple. Stop bringing this, you know, this structure into faith. It's about relationship. It's not about rules and regulation. Whatever you're doing, it isn't working. Stop doing it. Do what I do. Follow me. He didn't say worship me. He said, follow me. Do what I do. Watch. Do these things. Feed the homeless. Parent the childless. Love the, the, the widows. Take care of people. Love people. Church. Church is not the building. Church is the body. We are the body. He came to show us those things. And so as I'm learning, I'm like, okay, so God is not talking about rules and regulation. He's not talking about anger and judgment. He forgave everybody, even, even, you know, the, the, the uh, prostitute. Everybody picked up a stone, getting ready to lay that woman down. And he said, let the first one without sin cast the first stone. Let the man without sin cast the first stone. Not a single stone was thrown. He showed compassion and love. He passed no judgment, even to the lady when he spoke to her. Go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. God doesn't condemn us. We condemn ourselves. And so what I started to learn, man, was like, okay, so this fear, shame, and guilt thing, that we've been, that I've been taught is, doesn't seem to fit with what is written and read in the Bible. The Jesus words, it doesn't fit. And so I'm learning, man, like, you know, we don't, we don't have to go spread the, the gospel that everybody must, you know, believe this one specific way or you're going to hell. Hold on a second. Oh, and God loves you. Now go share that message. So, it came to it came to my awareness that Christianity claims to have a monopoly on heaven. Well, so does Islam, and so do several other religions. Well, who's who's right? Well, how about we look at just look at Jesus' path: love, forgiveness, peace, humility, patience, kindness. That's the path to salvation, right there. I judge. So that's the path I choose. And I've man. learned, man. I've learned like we're not punished for our sins later. We're punished by our sins here and now. We create our own hell here and now. Okay, so I have a choice to make. I can choose to live a love that shines light, encouragement, hope, generosity, patience, 
and I'm instantly rewarded. Or I can be impatient, judgmental, unkind, and I can suffer here and now with those that I condemn. I never feel good about being in shadow or in darkness. It doesn't serve me, and it doesn't serve the world. And so my path is that I do not really call myself a Christian. I am a Christ follower. Christian Christianity is a religion. Christ is the way. And that's the, that's the path I choose. Right or wrong, I just now come to understand that I am love and light. That's all I will ever be. And if I just live that out, what what better what better use of my effort, my life, my light can I possibly do have or use, utilize? What can I do better than that? Rook, um, <laughs> I think we can end it now, buddy. That was, that, <laughs> that, that was pretty. That was pretty awesome. Um, you know, no man. I, I, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I mean, I could just tell you're speaking from the heart. And, and it's, it's, you bring up such a compelling point and that is when we're, when we're younger, we are, we are filled with certain perceptions based on the culture that we live in. And, and we're almost kind of pre-programmed to be, to follow suit with our culture. It reminds me of uh, a quote that I heard on the Jay Shetty podcast. He was quoting someone else. I don't think it's his quote. But it goes like this. I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And it speaks to the fact that our perceptions of ourselves are really through the eyes of others. And when you think when you put that into the facet of what you just discussed, and you just talked about it with, as being a child and being you know raised by your family, and there's no no uh, malintent there, but you see yourself through your parents' eyes, and you form your judgment of your you know your identity and your self worth and all that stuff through your parents' eyes. And uh, for some of us, and for maybe many many of us that that don't actually go in and reflect uh, that same viewpoint of yourself uh, sticks with you for life. And when you take the time to actually do some critical thinking and and step outside that box, uh, you get to the point where you just discussed, which is you're formulating your own opinions. You're you're able to um, to think critically about certain things that you read for yourself and kind of separate yourself from from what you were um, programmed as a child to think and may, maybe they align, maybe they come back and they're in perfect alignment. Maybe they're not. But the point is, is that I think you bring up such a compelling argument there that, that how important it is to actually just take the time to do this reflection. And you've been doing it for 18 years. So it's like the stuff that just came out of your mouth. I mean, that's years and years of, thinking through this stuff and living it in in uh in, in going through the work and and now you're able to say what you say and that's where you are and it's beautiful but i think it's such an awesome point man um the the you discussed fear shame and guilt that comes up a lot um do you do you you know 
when, when you when you think of fear, shame, and guilt, you mentioned the dark side, the shadow. Where were you with those three words 18 years ago relative to now? Mm. Well, so 18 years ago, I was in the thick of it. Um, I mean, my parents, when we left the Catholic Church in 83, we went straight to a full gospel, far-right, charismatic, very fundamental Christian church with very little room, if any, for anything any type of truth that existed outside of what they taught. So more fear, shame, and guilt, more one way or the other. I mean, one way or hell, you know. Um, it wasn't until probably 2000. See, I started my work in August of 05. That was my first men's initiation weekend and into men's work, into true deep introspection, into deep diving deep into my core wound. And it probably wasn't until probably 2008 or 2009 that I started to like really like, uh, gosh, man, there's just so much um, dichotomy going on here. So I'd say, yeah, 2008, 2009. So I'm probably 14, 15 years into something along the lines of 15 years into like turning the page into where I, into learning what I believe to be the truth. Mm. You mentioned core wound. Um, for those of us or listeners who, who don't understand that piece, can you sort of define a little bit more about that, what a core wound is and how that it can impact you? Sure. Right. So <clears throat> as I understand it, it's, um, you know, we're, we're all dealt a wound, you know, somewhere between the age of three to nine years old. And it's usually delivered by someone we love the most. A lot of times it's dad or mom, not always, but a lot of times, uh, my mother died when I was seven years old. I was in the second grade. It was like 10 days before Christmas in, in 1981. And, uh, she passed away after like a three year bout with cancer when they didn't know jack crap about, uh, chemo back then. I mean, they'd kill your ass with chemo quick, like back then, you know, so, uh, but the cancer just metastasized. It was brutal. It was aggressive. It was fast and furious, man. And so it was, um, you know, from the time I was in kindergarten until she passed away in second grade, I mean, I just didn't really have that incredible, um, tender momminess, you know, that mom time that, that you just crave as a little boy and absolutely need, right? Because at that point we haven't migrated into daddy yet. We're still, you know, we're still attached to mommy, you know, and so uh, she passed away. And so my core wound was just abandonment, you know, it was just abandonment and to the tune of the, the effeminate. And it was um, since then, you know, I, like I have always had a hard time standing up to women. I used to have a hard time standing up to women that don't anymore. But there was always that um that need to be affirmed and loved by the feminine and that shaped and molded me and my sexuality and my relationship with, with women and uh, my confidence for such a long time until I learned like how that's showing up. And so that, that wound, uh, I'll speak more to that. And that was specifically mine, but the wound is just typically, you know, it, it happens at a young age. Um, it sends a message, true or false, that we believe to be true about ourselves and uh, that that becomes um, our shadow our, our shadow behavior typically 
uh, is exhumed from that decay, from that darkness, um, that I'm not good enough or that, uh, you know, there's something wrong with me or, I'm, you know, I, I don't have what it takes. So the wound, um, the, the shadow behavior evolves from the wound most of the time. Um, this is how I understand it. And some people have a different interpretation, but that's, that's my, um, that's my take on it. Mm. And that and shadow, have- that shadow behavior being, you know, the part of ourselves, you know, because I guess like the fundamental definition, that part of ourselves that we hide, repress and deny the part of ourselves that is destructive, that is defensive, that has attack, um, mechanisms, a lot of egoic behavior behind it, um, attack thoughts and defenses that, you know, we like to, um, hold, hold things against people or, um, be very defensive and guarded and disallow people from coming in because we are protecting ourselves. And at some point that serves a purpose, but eventually it becomes um, a, a very wretched behavior that causes more damage than, than protection and, and healing. How does how does one know what their shadow is? Like if, if they've never even said the word shadow, and they thought about that, what, what would what would you suggest is the way to identify your shadow? Well, if they've never heard the word, they've never been around people who do the work, which um, leads me to believe that it's probably not something you're going to be able to identify if you're not doing deep introspective work with men who have walked the journey or women, if you're a woman who have walked the path, right? Because it's, it's your best laid efforts that got you exactly where you are. So you're not going to dig yourself out with the same shovel that you dug, you know, that you, that you dig the hole you're in. So, um, I would say that, you know, most people are in denial that they even have shadow until they really see it and do the work, you know, what we do is we, you know, we put it out there. We're surrounded by loving, powerful men who help us see that stuff that uh, we didn't know existed, you know? So how does someone go about it? Charlie, that's a damn good question. Um, I'd say in the company of other strong people, mm, Okay. You know, because we're, we're doing things that um, to ourselves and to other people. And we, we don't see it until we see it. Even mm. after 18 years, you know, on bad days, you know, I show up dark sometimes. I show up dark sometimes and I recognize that I do that. But I also know my mission, right? And so I'm able to recognize my shadow because I I can, I mean, I can pinpoint it. I know my mission. I know my shadow. And when they pop up, see, gotcha. And I know how to get out of shadow. I know how to get out if I choose. Mm. And what happens to someone who uh, maybe doesn't get the chance to become aware of their core wound. They cause more damage to the people around them. The relationships suffer. They live. There's a propensity to live a, a dimmer, duller life that lacks the resilience that can be achieved by doing the work. The people that are around us, they cower or they're reluctant to speak. We don't truly ever get to know them because they are afraid to really light up around us because we're quick to shut it down. That's shadow behavior, right? Just muting people that don't, um, that don't align with our beliefs. Very dangerous practice. 
it's a very sad experience to watch and see and to recognize in myself too. You know, I'm guilty of it. I've been guilty of it. And then I have those moments like, oh man, I look back like she was only trying to be excited about this very, you know, perhaps like go to my daughter or my wife. And they were, they were exuberant about something and I squashed it because I was grumpy, tired, hangry, um, irritable, right? And I missed an opportunity to really see what they were trying to show me. They were trying to show love and light. They were trying to share life with me and I missed it. So what happens to people who don't ever figure that out, Charlie? I think they probably struggle in on the deathbed. Mm. Can you imagine realizing on your deathbed when you come become fully enlightened? Oh my gosh, look what I have squandered. Look what I have done. Look at who I've hurt. I do not want that to be me. I want to be on my bed fully clear, totally open. And I practice that. And I've been practicing it for 18 years. How do I open myself so that I do not harbor regret? You know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't wish to harm anybody ever. And it's a daily walk. It's a daily practice of surrendering self, ego, judgment, all those things, you know. So I may have said too much. I may not even answer your question. I don't know, Charlie, but I'm just, uh, I'm just kind of letting the heart flow, I suppose. Brooke, you're doing exactly what I was hoping you'd do. <laughs> and that's just sharing your heart, man. And I love it. Um, I want to touch, touch a little bit on your connection with nature. Because you mentioned it, you mentioned that, you know, as it kind of when you were in athletics and uh, as, a, as a child, the real thing that popped out at you the most was just being in nature. And, uh, and I noticed that about you now is that um, when you get into that space, that spiritual space, man, you, you, you just seem to connect with nature and you also hunt. And the way you describe hunting and and what you do after a kill, it's like it's like the circle of life. I love how you describe that. So maybe maybe you could speak a little bit about your journey to um to sort of honoring nature. Yeah, thanks. Um I grew up outdoors, you know. I, I grew up I mean, I'm a child of the seventies, man. You know, there there were no video games. Our parents didn't want us inside. We didn't want to be inside. Inside meant you're going to get asked questions and maybe do chores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. be outside. You're drinking from the garden hose. You know, oh, you're yeah. getting clawed in the shin by your, by your bear claw pedals on your bike. You just, you, you know, you didn't go inside. You just handled business on your own and just be inside, inside by the time dinner's ready. Um, <clears throat> I grew up camping with my father and my father was kind of an old school guy. You know, we'd sleep on cots under a big tarp that he would, he would string ropes between trees and just have a big tarp, like a 20 by 40 tarp. And every, the whole family camped out underneath the thing. We didn't do tents. We, if, while we were camping, you know, we were, we were in the water, we were in, on the river, we were behind the boat, in the lake, whatever, just super connected outdoors. Um, his dad was, my grandfather was the same way. And so I think, you know, there's just this um, continuity of connection to, to nature and to God through the outdoors. Um, you know, I ran around without shoes on most of the time. I need to practice more of that today, but um, we probably all do, right? But 
man, there's just a stillness that is found just in that moment of rest. You know, when you sit still, you know, you can be active and climbing hills and all that, but it's at some point you sit down, be still and know, be still and know. And you just, you just feel it. You know, it. it's just a, it's just a beingness. It's just, um, an exercise and, and wellness, just knowing, just sitting in that moment, like, ah, that breath, here I am. I am biology in nature. I am biology in motion. I am made of this earth stuff and stardust and other stuff, you know, all this other beautiful creation. You know, everything that has ever existed is still here today and always will be. And I'm just pieces of that, you know, and except for this light filled soul that lives inside of me that energizes this temple. Um, even this energy, even this ball of light that energizes me, the soul, the spirit, it has always existed. It always will. Just like the matter that my physical body is made of, you know, it's all one and the same. I am nature in motion with a consciousness. And this current meat suit is just on loan until I occupy the next one. Um, I have a great affinity for nature and all things beautiful. Spiders, I think even amazing, you know. Um, I'm um, captivated by animals. You know, my spirit animal is a rhino. And I can't explain it. I don't understand it. I just know that to me, that is the most majestic, powerful, loving, calm, beautiful animal on this planet. And I connect with it deeply. I have great affinity and appreciation and gratitude. I have rhinos all over my office. <laughs> Made of stone, made of art, <laughs> made of photo, you know, made of wood. It doesn't matter. Um, what more did you ask me? I'm trying to kind of encapsulate. Oh, that. the yeah, just wanted to know how you handle a hunt. A hunt. Hmm. I grew up watching my dad do that before I could even carry a rifle or hold one or shoot one. And I watched him field dress a deer one time, my sister and I. And he just did it right there where he, where he shot it. He just field dressed it right there on the ground. And my sister was like, ooh. And I was like, ooh, wow. So I watched my dad provide for us this gentle, kind, docile man that I told you about has a feral, wild man inside of him. And he cut that animal open like a surgeon. And he got his hands in there. And he was just pulling out all the stuff you don't want so that he could put it on his shoulders and carry that beast back to camp where he could hamstring it and do everything he was going to do to it, cape it. And I was like, damn, that is some, and, you know, here I am at five, six years old. And I'm just like, this is the manliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I think that inspired a desire that, that feral passion, that, that, this, that, that raw, prim, primal, primitive energy was just like, man, I was captivated, Charlie. I was captivated. My dad became my hero in that moment in a very special way. He showed me, son, without any words, this, this is a, this is an experience of life. We are carnivores. We are predators. Our eyes are on the front of our face. We are wise. We know how to use tools and instruments of warfare. 
that we may live and live abundantly. Watch, watch and do. And now when I hunt, man, like I close that circle. I know where my meat comes from. I know how it lived. I know how it died. And I know how it got on my plate. Meat is not raised in the grocery store, right? It all has a life cycle. But mine, mine has a special, a special story behind it. And I feed my family pure, clean meat, free of, you know, pesticides and, and, and uh, herbicides and hormones and all this stuff, right? It's like, it's pure, it's real. You know, and in, in the, I've said this before, like I was watching Stephen Ranella, who uh, has an episode called Meat Eaters. He, was a, he did a, an interview, he looked like he was in New York. And there were just a lot of people in there really intrigued by him. And these were all city folk and they were really interrogating him. And he said something so interesting. He said that modern anatomical man is about 80 to 90,000 years old. We have always hunted. And to not hunt is rather peculiar. Up until about, I don't know, 300 years ago, if you didn't hunt, you were a minority. And it's like, wow, that is amazing. Let's give it a thousand years. Let's say that people started doing market and people were hunting a thousand years ago for the general populace. So let's even even then you still have 85,000 years of nature just calling to man saying, hey, if you want to eat, you kind of got to go kill it yourself, you know. So learning the art of the hunt. And then so when I do, I walk up and I put my hands on that animal. And I have nothing but gratitude as I feel the body heat of that animal, knowing that it was once alive. And I thank God for the gift of this animal, for its life, that I get to participate in some way in its life and that its life now contributes to my life. And it is not wasted. I do not waste the meat ever. You know, like my, my family doesn't finish their meat. Guess where it's going? You know, I'm, it, we do not waste that meat. It doesn't get wasted. So I take tremendous amount of uh, time to show gratitude and respect for every animal that I take and harvest. I love that, Brooke. I want to switch gears now. Um, let's talk a little bit about adoption. Mm. You, um, this one, like emotional, man. I know, I know you do, man. And, and I, I want, I mean, it, there's so many avenues about this and so many uh, people out there in the world that, that uh, don't have the ability to have children and adoption is one of those options. And can you maybe talk us through the decision, how it came about and uh, what you guys did? Sure. So, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're in our, probably late twenties is where, uh, you know, we're married, I think somewhere around the age of 27, I think. And our friends are all having kids, man. I mean, you know, our entire circle is just laying them out. One, two, three kids at a time, you know, and we're like watching them and our circle is getting smaller and smaller because those with children hang out with those with children and those who can't, typically have a harder time being around those who can. So Amy and I tried and tried, man, and the chemistry was not there. It just, it wasn't happening. 
We could not get pregnant. We tried for, you know, 10 years and it was failure after failure and tremendous amounts of emotional ups and downs. Um, only those who have been through this can truly understand what, what it's like. But, you know, as a provider to not be able to provide that to a wife who is intuitively built to provide, you know, to, to create life, to not be able to create life is a, uh, is a real kick in the pants, man. And so when you go through that long enough, you just grow fatigue and just like, you know what, we're just going to quit trying. And you put it to bed and it sleeps until it doesn't. And then one day it comes back to life and it's just like the maternal instinct there in my, in my wife was just profound and it's beautiful. It's a great thing. And we tried again. We went into the IVF, no, IUF, IUF, not IVF, IUF is similar, but, but different. Anyway, we're just taking me and putting it in her and I was learning like as soon as we would do it, she would go in tremendous utero pain. Um, so what it told me was like, there's something about my chemistry that does not mix with her chemistry. We do not align. And someone had mentioned that to me, a very wise client of mine had mentioned to me on a previous conversation. She's like, there's something about the chemistry, blah, blah, blah. And so when I, when I watched Amy get into pain, um, physical pain, uh, it was like, yeah, it's never going to take. So one day she says, you know, maybe we should look at adoption. And instantly I felt this resonance within me. Like, <laughs> of course we should look at adoption. There was no reluctance or hesitation. She goes, why don't you reach out to Jay? Because we've got a lot of friends that are adopted. A lot of them. She goes, why don't you reach out to Jay and see if he'll have a talk with us. So we took Jay to lunch. And then Jay ended up buying our lunch. But we tried. And he's an adoptive father to the Gladney Center for Adoption in Fort Worth, Texas. They're one of the larger adoption agencies in the nation. Probably maybe the largest in Texas. The um, they're a great organization. Many of the adoption laws that are written are written by the attorneys on staff at the Gladney uh, Adoption, and so they have a really good program where they uh, they bring mothers in. They have dorms for them to stay in. They pay for all the medical bills. They give them education. They you know teach them a, a trade that they can use, and they go out into the world as they're you know in their you know in their custody. Um, a lot of children are kicked out of their houses, you know, for shame. You know, you're pregnant. You get the hell out of here. And so these girls have a place to go. So it's a really neat place. Um, well-funded, well-organized machine. We went and interviewed this Gladney Center for Adoption. We interviewed them you know, on a special day. They have, you know, probably 20 other adoptive parents there checking out their program. And they're really telling us about it. And Amy is really, she's not a very spontaneous person. She's very thought out and methodical and planned, very type A. During a break, about three quarters of the way through, she, we walk out onto the, on the patio and take a break. And she goes, we're putting an application in today. And I was like, we still have three other places. We want to interview. She goes, nope, this is the one. Are you sure? She's like, do I ever do anything like this ever? And I said, no, you don't. Let's do it. So we put an application in. Mm. We um, were accepted, and then the process of adoption is really, it's, its you know, buying a house is a nothing deal compared to adoption. 
So we go through the process. We meet our birth mother in the beginning of her third trimester. We have dinner at her house with her family. This is this is totally different than a lot of people. A lot of people have a closed, semi-open or fully open. We were clearly ready for fully open. Mm-hmm. She met kind of the criteria that we were looking for. Uh, she found our profile book um, online. She wasn't really supposed to find our profile book. There were so many other families that were had been at Gladney for a much longer time, you know, almost a year, year and a half, and they were really trying to help place those families with the child. She found our adopt our, our profile book online. She goes, I want to meet Amy and Brooke there. I want to see Amy and Brooke's profile book. They're like, well, here's about five more. I want you to look at these. She pushed them back across the table. She said, if I don't see Amy and Brooke's profile book, I am walking out the door with this child. You will never see me again. And they go, here you go. <laughs> Gave her a profile book. Her mom, the birth mother's mom, the birth grandmother, said they were driving home. She's looking through the book, got halfway through it, threw it in the back seat, and said, these are the ones. We ended up meeting her a couple weeks later at dinner. Over the course of the last three months of her pregnancy, we had dinner with the family three times at their house, pool, you know, hanging out in the pool, lunch and dinner. I mean, you know, six to ten hour events every time. Mm. We got the call. We had our bug out bag ready. We had got the call at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night on a weeknight. We get in the car. We drive from Houston to Fort Worth in two hours and 18 minutes. So do the math. We were smoking and we get to the hospital at like, I don't even know what time it was. It was, you know, two hours and 18 minutes later. She, she's in labor and about an hour after she delivers, they come and they say, the birth mother, grandmother comes out and say, she's ready for you. We walk oh. into the room, man. And there's the birth mother's name is Amy also. And, uh, she looks at us and goes, here's your daughter. I'm like, Huge words. I mean, you can't imagine the the strength, courage, and determination it takes to go through with an adoption plan for 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 a young child, right? And so she hands the she hands Bella to Amy, and Amy's holding her and she's crying, and I'm just observing like the beauty, the magnificence of the moment. It's absolutely perfect. And Amy's like, "Would you like to hold her?" And I was like. Yes. Give me a second. I held Bella in my hands. And I looked down. She looked at me with those big brown eyes. And instantly, I realized why we couldn't get pregnant. We were never supposed to be. Because we never would have been available for this child. This was our path. And it took tremendous amounts of faith and patience and faith and patience. And I just said, thank you, Father. I'm sorry. I understand. Mm. Please forgive me for my impatience and my anger all these years. I get it. And it was at that moment, I was like, this is the biggest 
I'm, this is the highest level of commitment I will ever have in my life. And uh, it was a, that was a profound, the most profound moment of my life. Mm. Brooke, thank you for uh, being so active there. That's, uh, man, you gave a really good picture there. You know, mm. something, something happened about, you know, about Amy and I were still on, on the path of trying to get pregnant, and we're sitting at Lupe Tortillas having lunch on a Sunday after church. And one table over, you know, elbow distance away, is a really beautiful family. He's <clears throat> a dad. He's got a 16-year-old daughter and probably like a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter. Maybe she's 13. They finished their lunch and you, know, they, you could tell they just got out of church too. He's kind of sitting back in his chair. He scoots away from the table a little bit. Not 30 seconds later, his 12 to 13-year-old daughter just comes and sits on his lap and just reclines into him. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. This man has a teenage daughter who still loves her daddy. And I told him, I was like, check out how beautiful this is. And they get up to leave. And he lets the family go first, his wife and his two daughters. And he's about to pass me up. And I grabbed his wrist. I said, sir, I said, I just want to let you know that I appreciate the amount of work and effort you must have put in to being a good father. To watch your daughter at that age come and sit on your lap and just relax into the presence and the, and the, the security she has is, a, is really profound. Some version of that, right? And he looked at me and he's like tilted his head and he's like kind of a, like dumbfounded. He's like, wow. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. I've never, I've never heard that. Mm. Let's have a great day. He goes, you too. Uh, and he walked off and I thought, I want that. I want that. So every day when we sit down and say grace, breakfast or dinner, I have my chair far enough away from the table and Bella comes and she sits on my lap and she reclines into me and I wrap my arms around her and we pray over our food. And some days, when dinner's done, she'll come, and she'll push my chair, she'll push on me, and I'll scoot back, and she'll just curl up into me, and we'll finish our conversation after dinner. And I get that. I get it. I get what he had, and hopefully still has. So, wow, yeah, that's, uh, our daughters uh, bring us something absolutely beautiful. And uh, I don't know what it's like to have a little boy. But I know that girls change a man's heart. And she helps heal some of that wound of the feminine that I received at seven years of age in some way, some form, some fashion. God is good. Mm. Brooke, I, I don't uh, I don't know how we can top that that story. Um I think uh, this is a good wrap-up point, brother, because that, that is just downright beautiful. Um, are you – is there – if there's somebody's listening right now, I mean, because you, you mentioned so many good points that you've been through, both on the spiritual side and on the adoption side, um, 
you know, I, I guess the patience piece just sticks out for me. So I just I want to get your last take, like last words on on advice for younger parents, and maybe they're not even parents, maybe younger couples, um, thinking that they want something right now. What, what would what would you tell them? <clears throat> Give me one second, Charlie. Take your time. You are right where you're supposed to be. There is divine wisdom that is gleaned in the struggle, in the wait. If you could, you can shoehorn it, you can, you can force feed it, but you will miss the lesson. You will miss the gift. And I would add that if there are any parents who have children, that may have an unplanned pregnancy, do not encourage abortion because you are robbing a family the opportunities that I have. If you, if you encourage your child to do that, there, there are so many adoptive parents out there waiting right now that could be blessed and the child could be blessed. So adoption is a viable option, man, for sure. So I'm a big proponent of adoption awareness and uh, patience. It's uh, it's not a <laughs> it's not something I have a lot of, but it's something I've learned that if I will just trust the process, life is so sweet. Mm. Yeah, you can't rush the brisket, man. You gotta let it. You gotta let it go. <laughs> Brooke, thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone here for listening today. If you like what you've heard, please remember to follow, share, and give us a strong review. If you're a man searching for improvement and growth, be sure to check out strongdadscommunity.com. It has been a real pleasure here, Brooke. Thank you so much for sharing your heart today, brother. Love you, Chuck. Have a great day, brother. All right, everybody. We're out. Have a great rest of your day.